Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 15 through 19. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I stand before you completely and totally dependent on your word. I pray, God, that your grace would go before all the words I'll speak this morning and that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts to understand what you would have us to hear. Lord God, that we find sufficiency in the gospel again, that we would find rest in what Christ has accomplished. And whatever we should do as we encounter God, the face of God, with his words, saying what he intends to communicate to us, whether we tremble or whether we joyfully rejoice. I pray, God, that we would see him and that we would understand who Christ is in spirit and in truth. We'd worship him for who he says he is, not who we have conceived of him to be. Pray, God, that you would guide our hearts and our minds this morning, God, and hide me behind the cross, Lord God, that Whatever is conveyed, bring glory to the name of Christ. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And be seated. <clears throat> so if you ever thought that being a preaching pastor is a cushy job, and imagine you back away from that claim after reading verses like these, or even exploring the book of Hebrews in totality, Understand that we're just kind of cracking the surface as to what this entire book is conveying to us. But it's not easy. It's not easy to wrestle with the content here, with the mindset of bringing clarity to the truth that God would teach us here. And we're right smack dab in the middle of what is called a warning passage. Chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13, contains this entire passage which, which is communicated as a warning. This is understood to be a warning for this audience. And this passage is one of four such termed passages in the book of Hebrews. We've already dealt with one at the beginning of chapter 2. The emphasis of considering these things more closely, lest we drift away from them. How shall we escape such a great salvation? That warning context, the one that we have here before us, and what is to come in Hebrews chapter 6 and also Hebrews chapter 10. So if you're, if you're in your mind kind of thinking, all right, it's classified as a warning passage written to Christians why do Christians need to be warned? 
Why would a Christian need to be warned? We've explored kind of this idea of who this audience is or who is this writer speaking to? Who is this writer addressing? And to to answer the question of why Christians would need to be warned or why warnings would be addressed to this audience, I'd like to explore a, a controversy of the day. Scholars are pointing to a specific controversy that this writer is speaking towards or that he's, he's responding to. And one of these controversies is that of the first century lapsi. First century lapsi. Lapsi spelled L-A-P-S-I. And the first century lapsi are those who turned away from the Christian faith because of severe persecution. We often hear of the heroic stories of those who endured, the heroic stories of those who kept the faith and faced lions and were cut in half and were burned at the stake, yet they still cried out to Jesus as Savior. They would not turn their back on the message of the cross. But this first century lapsy, this group of people, did turn away. They faced an untimely end, a devastating end. They, they faced a violent end, and they said, no, I don't want to go through that. This word lapsy is a word that we, we can derive the word lapse or relapse from. And this group of people, what, what typified the lapsy would, would be someone who says, okay, I observe this decree that says anyone who calls on the name of Christ or is associated with this Christian faith will be thrown into a coliseum and have to contend with lions. Some of those who hear this say, I'll suffer anything for the cause of Christ. But then some who would hear this would say, I'm not doing that. Tell me what I have to do to avoid that circumstance. Tell me what I have to do in order to to be removed from this category who is getting ready to face impending danger. Tell me what I need to do. And there would be things for them to do. They'd have to denounce the Christian religion. They would have to ascribe to the local idolatry that was mainstream for that place. And they would avoid such persecution. Now this letter, which many scholars agree is more written in the style of a sermon was given to encourage those who were being severely persecuted in order that they may keep the faith and endure. So avoid this classification as the lapsi, those who would turn away from the hardness of persecution in order to save themselves from an untimely end. This letter is written to encourage them to endure, to persevere. As Brock unpacked so excellently for us last week, perseverance is one of the primary applications of reading such a text, something that would be classified as a warning text. Perseverance is one of the primary applications 
in how we respond to the warnings that are being articulated here. Last week, we, we explored our identity and the assurances that we find in the trenches of persevering to the end. We find our identity and we find certain assurances. We answer questions such as, who are we? Or what gives us confidence? And where is our hope? This informs our perseverance. This strengthens us. This settles us. This gives us the means to endure hard trials. And the text literally says in chapter 3, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. With these texts, you read a warning to Christians, and immediately the questions often arise concerning eternal security. Now, I, I think Brock appropriately responded to that, and if you have not heard the sermon, I encourage you to go listen to the sermon on the podcast. There's also something here, there's something implicit here in this text. The questions that arise concerning eternal security, and then there's questions that arise concerning the concept of a backslidden believer. So just as a, a quick aside to understand or at least address this idea of the backslidden believer, the believer, the implication that there are backslidden believers or those who are Christians, but they, they have experienced some season of sin or there's, there's an outward reflection of their devotion to God that doesn't look like the most ideal picture of Christianity, this backslidden believer who's just in a state of sin is not something that, that needs its own category. It's not something that needs special attention and focus. The implication that there are backslidden Christians gives an implication of perfected Christians. So when you see someone who is in a state that doesn't look ideal, you, you're, you're tempted to say that this is a lesser grade of Christianity or that there is something wrong with this spotted brand of Christianity that doesn't look like the perfect form or the idealistic picture, the one who's keeping the faith, staying strong, exhorting, and saying things that are true about the gospel all the time. Their family looks perfect. It looks lined up with everything that Scripture teaches. There aren't backslidden Christians, and then perfected Christians. They're only Christians being sanctified on the way to being glorified. Addressing this idea of the lapsy. You see, the, the first person who was not maybe necessarily technically assigned the term as one of the lapsy, but the first one who may have represented the idea of the lapsy would have been the Apostle Peter. The person who, in the face of something negative or something harmful or something to fear happening to him, in the face of that, he denies Christ three times. 
The person who walked with Christ, the person who confessed him as the Messiah, faces a moment of being associated with the followers of Christ. And he says, I don't want to go through what it looks like my master is going through. We take our cue from that. I hope what we're able to see is that the Christian journey doesn't look one way. If we take our cue from the scriptures, we'll find that it is full of miracles and failures, rebukes and rejoicings, warnings and encouragements. That said, those who share in Christ will persevere to the end. Those who share in Christ will persevere in their faith in Christ to the end. Now this morning, I'd like to explore another implication of this text, urgency. I'd like to explore the the implication of urgency. What is being conveyed here is being conveyed urgently. And not just urgency as a general category, but urgency as a matter of faith. Now, perhaps you may think, look, we've, we've already kind of talked about that because perseverance carries with, this, with it an implication of urgency. And to that, I would say not necessarily. There are some ideas of what perse- perseverance looked like that just basically looks like, yeah, I'm kind of casually proceeding through this. And I haven't done the really bad things, but at the same time, I don't want to be involved in the things that cause real sacrifice. If we think of perseverance not as just finishing, but finishing well, we encounter something different than what we may have assumed. Finishing well seems to be the present theme in these texts where we persevere with urgency. So there's perseverance and urgency and then ultimately this idea of rest. Finishing well, we understand that there is an urgency in addressing the people who will hear these words, and then there's an urgency on how the people hear these words and respond. Will they respond urgently to what has been conveyed? So we must not conclude that biblical perseverance bypasses active participation with this laissez-faire attitude that things will just work out in the end as long as I don't denounce something. There's, there's, there's no coasting element to perseverance. There's no, we, we'll just collapse into the arms of death and we're, we're finally free from the burdensome task of living. We're escaping the responsibilities that we have here. We're, we're just taking it day by day and not bothering anybody, staying out of the way, and, and we'll, we'll just finally be with Jesus. The sentiment here should look more like what Paul communicates in Philippians chapter 1. The torn between two worlds concept, where he has an urgent desire to be with the Lord, far from this earth, far from these circumstances. Yet there is still an urgent sense of the acute needs for people here on earth. 
with that, we understand that there's fight, there is vigilance, there is zeal. That perseverance is not just a countdown to the end, but it is actually making every moment count. We hear this urgency in Peter's exhortation to the leaders in the scattered churches where he says, be sober, be vigilant, or vigilant. He, he is, he's telling them to keep their eyes open, be aware of what's coming. Satan is seeking to devour you. Be aware, be fixed on Jesus. Understand what it means to engage this world, this world because of what is coming your way. Don't just sit back and become complacent. We hear this in chapter 2 where the writer says, consider these things closely lest we drift away from them. Finally, here in chapter 3, we hear the writer tell these Jewish Christians to take care. Take care. Hold this close. Understand this is very important. Take care. Finally, we arrive at verse 15. We understand that the urgency is communicated again in the today exhortation. Today. Today. While it is called today. Not just today. There's just something you should consider, but today, if you hear his voice, it's very akin to what Jesus would say, he who has an ear, let him hear today. The illustration that we we uncovered with the Israelites and the wilderness experience. Brock took us back to the book of Numbers, and we understood that there was, this was a, an act of rejection against God, and this was, this was something that had fall, befallen them because they decided to reject what God had promised them in order to, to believe that the circumstances were too lofty for them to overcome. So they were crying and wailing and, and, and saying to Moses, like, why have you taken us here? Why, why are we here in this hopeless place? And this illustration was given to us to see how God dealt with these people. It's a typological picture of how not to persevere, how, how those who are unfaithful will not persevere. And this picture is, is pointing to a perseverance that leads them to the promised land. What we're uncovering here in Hebrews is something greater than the promised land as a type, something greater than the promised land as a geographical area. What we're exploring here is this concept of rest. So we reflect typologically to understand what is revealed in totality. That type that we see in the promised land and we see those people who died in the wilderness, we understand that they did not persevere to see this promised land, this place where they were, they were supposed to experience the favor of God and the riches of understanding what Canaan was, was, was laid up for this people, this 
Israel promise that's like, oh, if we can just get to this place where God is going to take us and the land's going to be flowing with milk and honey, our families are going to be rich, we're going to be prosperous. This is where they were headed and what they placed their hope in. But they didn't get there. And we understand now that the fact that they didn't get there teaches us something way deeper today. That type, that promised land, that, 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 that place where Canaan was supposed to give them everything that they desired was never meant to be the place that we all place our trust and our hope in. What is revealed to us today, the total fulfilled promise is revealed in Christ. This rebellion that we see in the Old Testament was born of those who thought that they were just going to arrive at this destination instead of participating in conquest. That was the big thing. They, they get to the edge of the promised land. They send spies out and say, what is this place really all about? Likely, they thought they were just going to get to the place and everything was just going to be laid up for them, that all they had to do was just sink into their prosperity. But what they were met with was the reality of conquest. They didn't just get to enter into the promised land and it was theirs. They saw giants. They saw civilization. They saw armies. They saw other people there who had already established the land. So not only were they going to just enter into the promised land, they had to conquer in the promised land. And that's not what some of them signed up for. That's not what most of them signed up for. Complacency and entitlement had filled their hearts and their confidence was in events and momentary comforts. The idea of the promised land had become a utopia for them where they could just coast until they received the reward. And here we find the need for urgency. What would it have looked like if the people endured this journey to the promised land with urgency? I want to contrast urgency with unbelief. They were punished in the wilderness because of their unbelief. We see that unbelief produces disobedience, complaining, and contempt for God. Disobedience, complaining, and contempt for God. Urgency produces obedience, thankfulness, delight in God. There are mechanisms of urgency The mechanisms of urgency that are explored here in this text are commands. Do not harden, take care, hold firm. These commands are mechanisms of urgency. Another mechanism is community. Exhort one another as a mechanism of urgency to keep our eyes fixed on that which is important. We need one another. Now, all of this that we've covered up to this point 
In, in thinking about urgency, you, you just may be thinking, man, this is just kind of, this is heavy. You may be filled with anxiety or apathy or fatigue. You're telling me more things I have to do. You're telling me that I'm not taking things seriously enough or these people aren't taking things seriously enough. Something will befall us if we do not take this seriously, if we're not urgent in our thinking. Just to be urgent just stresses me out. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. But there's no right way to apply this urgency unless we take, the, take a look at the nature of Jesus. The nature of this Jesus who would have us pay close attention to these words that are written here in this context. That would have us to consider closely what warning exhortations mean for us. The nature of this Jesus who is not just in New Testament phenomena, but is also present in the Old Testament reality that we explore in this type of the promised land, in this falling away in the wilderness. We need to consider Jesus. We need to consider him with fear and finality. We need to consider what's being said here with fear and finality. What happened in the Old Testament gives us a picture of a God who commits to righteousness. Commits to righteousness. It's not something that we we often want to think about or to consider closely, but we, we need to understand that Jesus is a terror to those who do not obey him. He is a terror to those who do not obey him. There's a song that I really like, and he, he kind of, the, the, the artist puts it this way, is Jesus is not a hippie picking lilies with his friends. That's not the, the Jesus that this book is giving us a picture of. But those who do not obey Jesus experience a terror from on high. The severity of God is present in his judgment. Where disobedience to the gospel gives way to the judgment of Jesus himself. 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 and 8. We see this very vividly in that Jesus comes with his holy angels to bring judgment on those who do not obey the gospel. So there is a fear and a finality to all that Jesus is. Everything that we've considered about him up to this point, we need to understand that the address that we have before us is not some man-made conclusion or some man-made concoction, but we are staring into the face of eternity and facing someone who is above us, beyond us, and is also right there in front of us. We will not escape 
Jesus. We will not escape his righteousness. We will not escape his finality. And if it causes you to tremble, that is the right response. You should not run from that sense to tremble before a God who is greater and more beyond you and also able to execute final and complete justice against you. It is good and is right to fear God. In fact, we see the disciples in the early church. Acts chapter 9 verse 31 says that they walked in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You see, we, we have to understand that this Jesus that is grander than our picture of what we would accept or that which we would embrace It's not just the suffering servant who bled and died for us. He is that and all of that and all that we rejoice in, but he is also the just judge, the just and the justifier. And the fullness of the gospel is found in Christ's conquest of his enemies. He is a conquering king. Why is that important? Because this typological picture of the promised land and what they encountered at the promised land and that they they had to enter into the promised land by way of conquest. They couldn't just slide into the promised land and get a mansion and get a bunch of cattle and get all the money that they could ever think of. They had to conquer this land. So what is typological in the promised land is revealed in the totality of Christ in that he conquers his enemies. The Israelites were discouraged that there remained a conquest at the promised land, but the faithful, the two who walked into the land and they saw everything that was happening around them and they They heard the negative report. They heard everything that was said. We can't do this. We can't conquer these people. They're too big for us. They've got too many resources. Those are, that's the majority. That's how people responded to this news that they had to face these wars and armies. But there were two people who walked out of the promised land, walked out of Canaan and said, we can take this place. We can take them. The Lord is with us. We can conquer them. They were the faithful who remained confident in whom they had believed. They knew that God was for them. Christ's conquest is complete, and the promised land is our inheritance in him. This group of Christians that are being written to right here in this sermon slash letter They needed to hear that they were more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. They needed to hear that they were not just fighting opposition with their own frail version of religious systematic obedience, but they needed to understand that they had a confidence in one who had gone before them, conquered their enemies entirely, had laid up for them a place of rest in him, and that 
through him, they were now more than conquerors. They needed to hear this. They were facing this opposition. They were facing this persecution. They were facing real threats to their humanity on earth, but they needed to see someone who was not only with us, not only a a person who suffered for us and and gave us a hope in a Savior that did a human act here on earth, but who also ascended to the place of the Most High, making purification for our sins. Holding firm to this confidence, they would not fall away. Being exhorted in this truth, they would not become one of the lapsy because they knew in whom they had believed. Moses did not enter into the promised land. Moses was disobedient. But here is one testified. There is one here being testified who is greater than Moses. Jesus orchestrates the true exodus. He brings dead to life in the true baptism. They're not just walking through the Red Sea to get to dry land, but there is a true baptism. There is a true resurrection from the dead, and he equips those who he has saved to persevere until they rest. Only Jesus is able to rightly ensure that this rest remained for his people The suffering Savior is sufficient, and He is supreme. We've learned this in the verses leading up to this point. There is a complete case here that is being developed for why we should have confidence, for why and how we can persevere. We suffer equipped with our trust in Him. Therefore, our belief is urgent. Our belief is active. It is diligent. We consider who commands us, then we consider who and what he commands. Now, I want to step away from the context of this particular audience Because what often happens is when we talk about persecution in its highest form, in its most vivid form, you know, we kind of back away from that context and say, that's that's just not us. How do I even relate to the reality of what's being conveyed here? Because that's not what I'm going through. That's not what we are going through. And I can admit this, this persecuted group of Jewish Christians would very possibly be staring into the face of a violent and gruesome end. Therefore, the urgency with which this is written lines up with their circumstances. I get it. Their circumstances commanded this kind of urgency. Yet, we have the text, and it is profitable for us. This is not something we back away from and say, send this over to Indonesia. Send this over to the Middle East. They need to hear this. I believe that we are faced with an even more dangerous assault against our urgency. I believe that assault is our comfort. See, when you're comfortable, you're not forced into urgency. 
The unbelief that leads to disobedience is more subtle. But it's the same. It's the same unbelief that's being talked about here. And it leads to the exact same result. If we consider the wilderness Israelites, this, we see that, yes, they had very different circumstances, but they didn't have very different results compared to what we see in our modern-day church here in the States. I'm going to ask you these questions. Does a Christian experience contempt for God? Does a believer suffer from incessant complaining and grumbling? Are arguing and quarreling identifiers of the community of faith? Questions are rhetorical. They're present. They're abounding. The same responses of those Israelites in the wilderness. Isn't our desperation harder to grasp in light of our conveniences? Doesn't our disobedience wear a more elaborate disguise? Let's travel back to verse 13. It's the first half of it. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. What does our obedience look like to that verse? What does our obedience look like as it relates to the urgency of responding to that verse? Not just so we can grade ourselves and and assume this higher level of righteousness, but the urgency that's being communicated here is directly related to the fact that we're guarding against deceitfulness of sin. That's why we're being commanded to exhort one another. How much different would our Christian lives look if we took this verse seriously, to not be hardened against the deceitfulness of sin because we face an exhortation. I'll tell you what my typical experience has been, because there have been seasons where I've been like, yeah, I'm going to really do this. I would say the majority of the seasons I have not. But there's been moments where I've got a spark of inspiration. I don't know if it's the filling of the Spirit. It's just like, I'm going for this thing. Probably about day four into it. Hey, brother, I just want to send you a scripture and encourage you in the Lord. It's kind of met with this indignant response like, hey, man, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm just encouraging you in the Lord. tiptoe into day five. Hey, man, Jesus is awesome, isn't he? Do you need something? No, I didn't just send a little text. I didn't call you. That's even more offensive. But the intention is there just to inject an exhortation that 
Christ is sufficient. Christ is all we need. Now also say that it's, it's even more difficult to do this with people who you don't know very well. I would dare not try this with people who I've just gotten to know over maybe the past year or so without establishing some longevity and and something like that. And that's not necessarily the right application, but I would say my own fears would cause me to hesitate to do that. But somebody I have history with, somebody who I know we've gone through some battles together with, I may just float something out there to them. But I will say that the results vary. There are those who say, thanks, man, I needed to hear that. That's confirmation. That's good. Thanks. Keep them coming. And then there's some folks who are like, you're about to be blocked. Not just doing this out of our own self-crafted zeal, but something that is truly in line with the application of perseverance and urgency that we find in this text. That none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, sharing in this confidence, holding it firm together. This is a mechanism of urgency. Our tendency is to brush off the urgency because we don't face the same circumstances. And I would say that we should serve the Lord urgently. There's nothing that you do that lines up with an obedient application of the Scriptures. There's nothing in that action that is worthless. There's nothing in that action that is pointless. There's nothing in those actions that are a waste of time. If you are doing this, if you are applying this, if you are actually in tune with the urgency of what you're guarding against. You're being attacked. Satan literally is trying to devour you at every opportunity. Any slight crack, he'll sliver in and you'll be deceived. You can be deceived. Don't think because your circumstances are lapped up for you that give you a a positive sense of, oh, things are going okay, that there isn't something that you have left open for him to tempt you in. And if you're not vigilant, if you're not sober-minded, if you're not urgent, if you're not taking this seriously and making it an important part of your Christian application, you're contributing to a system that we all see commonly applied in churches in this country. Not just churches here, but we relate to what we understand in the context that we live in now. You take literally and seriously the commands here and you will begin to find enemies even in your evangelical communities. You'll find folks that you find fellowship with look at you crazy and even despise you. But finishing well means that you're savoring every moment to put into action what cries out from your very transformed nature. Close with this. In our life group, we had just a really nice time this past Monday. And, you know, we were talking about 
conversion experiences and authentic transformation, authentic conversion moments where people preach and then they have altar calls and you see people respond in various ways, but over time they may or may not fall away or they may or may not remain strong. And the family shared with us that there's a old family member who actually got a chance to hear Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham used to do those crusades. He used to preach on TV and hold all these evangelistic camp meetings and things like that. This guy got the chance to not only respond to the message of the gospel in a general setting, and these were thousands of people typically, but he got to meet Billy Graham himself. So initially he comes up and says, yeah, I want to know Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. This is This message is true in the general assembly, in the crowd. Then he meets Billy Graham, and Billy Graham just asks him, are you saved? Are you sure you're saved? And it's met with this next level consideration of depth to say, I need to account for what has happened here, what I think has happened. But just that moment, just that opportunity to consider more deeply about this authentic faith that he said he'd taken on, started him on an authentic journey of perseverance and endurance in Christ. To where now, this man is 87 years old, not just sitting back with sage wisdom about what the Scripture says, with the man is on the street passing out tracts and evangelizing to strangers. That <laughs> is something you cannot conjure up in your flesh. I understand you can practice something and become so in tune with your routine that it just becomes routine. But there's something else about engaging with rejection with the gospel into the latter years of your life for the sake of something that does not just exist on earth. But you're entering into a rest with an urgent perseverance. It was encouraging for me to to think about that and to even find hope in a witness of a person who's walked with Jesus for a number of years to find finishing well still in urgent pursuit. You see someone who's not just counting down the days but making the days count. So all of us, I would say in Preach to myself. Be urgent. Be steadfast. Be sober. Urgency is a matter of faith. We constantly endure criticisms where people are asking, do you Christians even believe what you say you believe? Where atheists or people from other faiths literally look at us in our practice and say, do you actually even believe what you say you believe. Because based on what I'm reading here, and I don't even know anything about this faith, it should look different. Understand that as we continue to journey through Hebrews, 
that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Don't lose your urgency. Remain aware and sober of opportunities to apply that which you believe. Read the word of God and if it feels like you're drinking from the fire hose, keep coming back to it and asking the Lord for help to apply the most subtle detail because it is resurrection power and it stands beyond the test of time. Our God is worthy of urgent, urgent service. The days are short. Today is the day to respond. Jesus Christ, the same today, yesterday, and forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much, God, for your word. How it explores the caverns of our hearts in ways that we, <laughs> we don't want those to invade. We don't want to be seen so nakedly and open in any way, but God, your word penetrates us like nothing else can. I thank you for the truth of your word. I ask that we would continue to seek you in spirit and in truth, to worship you in spirit and in truth. To not become complacent, but remain sober-minded and diligent in our service to you, considering Jesus and his awesome splendor and his monumental humility. I thank you for all that you would teach us and ask that you would help us to continue to serve you as the Spirit supplies grace and power. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.